<laughs> Exodus 15 is where we're at. Um, for context, Exodus 12 was about Passover and getting the leaven out of our lives and letting the blood of the lamb cover us. Exodus 13, 2, consecrate and give to God what's God's. Exodus 13, 3, talk about God and remember his works. Um, and Exodus 13, 21 was about walking upright or there's that cloud of fire right in front of you. Follow that. Um, those are four different ways we can walk out and live out our faith. So as we go through Exodus, we're seeing these images for how to, how to walk in our faith. I like those four because if we ever get stuck, you ever feel like your faith is just kind of at a dead end do one of those four things like wake up in the morning and start in on those things work on sin in your life give something to god remember or talk about what god's doing and walk upright and try to make yourself uh, blameless before the lord for that day at least it's hard to do it for a long term um so pick one and get going then we got to exodus 14 and the conversation shifted a little bit and it was how to fight the enemy because the Egyptians are coming and what do you do to fight the enemy? And just as a quick reminder, there were three things you do to fight the enemy. One is don't be afraid. And that's a consistent biblical theme. You give it to God, you don't take fear. One way to think about that that hit me this week is you've already lost. And that's why we gave our lives to Jesus because our lives weren't worth that much. So it doesn't really matter what happens when you get into a fight. And that's a really freeing thing. It gives you a lot of psychological power like, I don't care what happens. I already gave myself to the Lord. So if this is what's going to happen, here we go. Um, another way to think of it is God's already run, won the battle. That God is past, present, and future tense. Whatever is going to be the outcome of the battle, God's already decided it and figured it out. Step number two to fight the enemy is stand still. Don't make big decisions when you're under assault. Bad idea. Always a bad idea. Um, so Jedi up. If you remember the example, pray read the word, get into fellowship with other believers and have some unleavened bread. Like that was the kinds of things you do. And then the third thing was see the salvation of the Lord, watch the wonders that God's going to do. When you're in the middle of a fight, just stand still, pray, watch what God will do. Um, in most other instances, he tells God's people to move. So the very end of Exodus 14, verse 31 and Israel saw a great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians and the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So they calmed their fear, they waited on the Lord and then the Lord showed up and it was really cool. And we just got done, my wife and I are working our way through Romans and we had a talk where they were saying, why don't we see as many miracles anymore? Or no, that was in the faith book we're reading. Why don't we see as many miracles today? And I'm thinking, because we don't do those things. We get into a fight and we fight. And then the Lord's like, well, you don't need me. You're doing your own thing. So there aren't these opportunities, I think. And in cultures where people let the Lord fight their battles, I think they see more of those kinds of miracles in their life. Um, so what's next? What comes next in the life of the believer? We've learned how to walk. We've learned how to fight the enemy. And then in Exodus 15, I love this because how do we walk in our life? The very first thing that should happen is we should praise the Lord. And if any of you who uh, hang around this place for any amount of time, you know that we say that all the time. In fact, who did we hear say praise the Lord last week? And we were like, cool, they're learning. It was, I think it was Levi. You were like, praise the Lord. And we're like, yeah, there you go. He's picking up the language. That's really cool. So verse 1 of Exodus 15, and we'll start working our way through. Then, so then is everything I just set up. Now we're here. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying... I'm not going to try to sing this. Sing it. <laughs> I don't know the tune. Sadly, they didn't write music at this point in time. <laughs> I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. Right? The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. So let's pick this apart a little bit. The children of Israel is the phrase they use. And just a reminder, we're still talking about the congregation. We saw that word being used for the first time in reference to this new community. It's not Hebrews. That's why it says children of Israel. It's a different name. Hebrews are ethnic. Children of Israel had a mixed multitude. Remember, there were Egyptians. There were other slave groups. There was a mixed multitude that went with the Hebrews when they left Egypt. So this children of Israel is anyone who submits to the law of God and puts themselves under the blood of the Lamb. Kind of like today's church. It's anybody who accepts the premise, right? So, and 
in Exodus, we've always seen God work with the people, and he does it through Moses, but it's not necessarily a narrative of the patriarchs. Through the rest of Exodus, we're going to see God works with the children of Israel as a population. I imagine this tune is kind of a marching song, like they're trudging into the desert, and as you start taking steps, you kind of sing almost like a military thing. So I kind of imagine a cadence that goes with it. Um, And they're super excited. Think about it. They just saw the Red Sea part. So that's an exciting moment. They saw a miracle, and what you do in response to miracles is sing God's praises. Um, Singing is a unique thing that believers do. It's one of my favorite parts about the Grinch Stole Christmas. What irritates the Grinch is the little Weeble people. What are they called? The Whovels? And they're all singing. And they're like, you know, singing with this joyful, happy nature. And it's weird because the Grinch hates this. And we're seeing so many Grinches in our culture today. Like they find people that sing and they're like, why are you so happy? And it's like, wow, do you realize there's children's stories about you and you're green in those stories? <laughs> and that sort of thing happens. But humans are unique in that we sing. You can say birds sing in kind of a way, but the way in which our brains are designed to pick up measure, rhythm, cadence, melody, and tone, we're uniquely designed for singing. That's not an evolutionary trait, unless you think singing really wins the other opposite sex into some sort of relationship. Singing is weird. It's a weird natural phenomena. And it's something that's totally unique to humans in that we write music and we sing music and we love music and it makes our, we respond to music. If you think of the emotional connection we have to music, it's one of the strongest mental connections in the head. So audio-wise, you can hear a song that you heard when you were a little kid and it brings the whole memory back to you. So the way in which song is situated in our head and in our cognition is super cool. Anyways, just a thought about singing, because we're reading a song tonight, at least the first part. The other thing is that we do new songs all the time. Animals don't develop new songs. We develop whole new genres of music as a people, and I just think that's a miracle in itself. Psalm 40, verse 3 says, He has put a new song in my mouth, even praise to our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. It's odd that like singing songs and fearing God kind of get paired together often. And I thought that was an interesting thing. But if you think of the power of God, yeah, you should be a little scared of a God that can do that, right? And the singing is the celebration that that God is on your side. So who? They're singing to the Lord. They're not singing about themselves and they're not singing about Moses. Um, They're not singing to a romantic love. They're not singing to their beer buddies in a tavern. They're not singing to their own greatness. And they're not singing about Moses. They're singing to the Lord. See that? Um, What are they singing? They're singing that he's thrown the horse and rider into the sea. They're actually celebrating the death of thousands of people. (laughs) We'll come back to that idea. Um, But the first four lines are still used in songs. David uses those first four lines, verse 1, in three different psalms. So that cadence, that line stays in Jewish tradition for a long time. It's like amazing grace to us. So, yay, there's dead people is Jewish amazing amazing grace. It's a persistent song that sticks around for hundreds of years. So we have to like acknowledge that's kind of it. Why are they singing? Because the Lord is my strength and my song. We don't have to fight or worry. They didn't have to come up with a plan against the Egyptians. The Lord took care of it. That's worthy of our song, and that's pretty cool. Um, Notice that the Lord there is our strength. We don't have to be stronger. He doesn't give us strength. I think that's a misconception sometimes. The wording here is the Lord is our strength, which means we eminently have the power of an eternal God working through us when we sing, right? Isn't that cool? Just a thought for you. And then he has become my salvation is actually only one word. And this is kind of interesting. Follow me on verse 2. See that whole phrase, and he has become my salvation? You might be worded a little different if you have a different version of the Bible. And if you want the New King James, there's ones back there. Um, That's only one word, and if you look up the Hebrew, that one word is Yeshua, later translated Jesus. And Moses didn't know Jesus, which is cool. But Yeshua is, he has become my salvation. I will praise him, or it could be translated, I'll prepare him a habitation is only one word. It's nava, right? So in the Hebrew, they use this word that has meaning and connotation. When they translate it to the English, they add a bunch of words in there. So again, follow me with this. Yeshua, nava, and I will exalt him is only one word, ruim, R-U-W-M. I don't know how to pronounce the Hebrew all the time, which means to rise up 
to raise up, to lift or exalt something, to set it on a high shelf and not because you're getting punished, but because it gets set in a position of honor. So nava means to keep it at home or to rest with or to have it dwell within you, to adorn yourself with this thing. So el nava means the God that you put inside of you. This gets even cooler if you follow this along. That means in verse 2, there's three different names for God, right? The Lord, Yah, Yeshua, my salvation, and God, El, or Elohim, is used with um, the abiding kind of peace. And there's three prepositions in verse 2. The Lord is our strength and song. Jehovah is our personal savior. And Elohim is given an honored position in our hearts or in our home. That would be... For a believer, you look back on Moses the prophet writing a song, he actually has the composition of a Trinitarian God. And that messes with Jewish people when you talk to them about it. Because you're looking at that going, yeah, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we can see it. Can you? And does that make sense to you? And in the English, it's harder to see, but in the Hebrew, it's pretty obvious. There's just this Yah, Yeshua, Elohim, and a preposition with it. And it's super cool because they're singing this song, this first song in the Bible and they're singing about God in three persons like there it is (laughs) right so this rekindles their prayer their prayer of salvation and now in verse 3 we're going to turn that first part it talks about salvation the next part's not safe for work I'm going to be honest we're going into politically completely incorrect territory here and you know I trudge into that shamelessly right this is about justice Our God is also about justice. This may not be good for your sentiments. I'm sorry, Alyssa, it's your first time here. Sometimes we talk about grace, but tonight we're talking about verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. That's who he is. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains are, are drowned in the sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Nothing like getting vivid. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy to pieces. (laughs) The Lord is a man of war. Our God fights when innocent people get cornered. If you're an innocent person and you've been living good and there's people that are hating on you, stand still, pray, watch what the Lord will do. Sometimes this gives you sweet justice. Because things happen to people that attack godly people. I almost, I'm old enough now and it's happened enough times where I almost feel like warning them and saying, you really don't want to hate on me. Because I love Jesus and when people hate on me, bad things happen to them. But that sounds really, it sounds really spooky, but it keeps happening. And and it's one of those things where you're like, I don't want that to happen to you, but God's not going to let some things happen to me and he's going to protect me. So, and other times I'm really happy when stuff happens. Like, I'm like, you had it coming, dude. And, but you can joyfully be there. The nice part about the Lord being a man of war is that we don't have to be. We can be people of peace because he fights our battles. Super Christian principle. In 1 Samuel 17:45, listen to this. Then David said to the Philistine, Thou comest at me with a sword and spear and a shield, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defied. This is a little kid facing a giant. That's the attitude we can have because God's a warrior. And these, these Israelites, they didn't really have weapons or the ability to protect themselves, but the mightiest in army in the world just got trashed in a few minutes. And that's where they can say things like that. David built that faith for Goliath because when David was growing up, he heard this story that we just got done with in Exodus 14. This story gave him faith to face giants. It should give us the same faith. You think he cares any less for you than he does for the other children of Israel? No, he loves you. And he will fight your battles if you let him. But there's so many Christians that go off and fight their own battles. God's still fighting. There is a battle going on. And I want to read, I want to get, I'm telling you, this is not safe for worth. I want to show you this pattern throughout the entire Bible. Jesus did not say, I'm a person of peace. 
Let me bring peace to everyone. The angel's saying that about him. But you know what Jesus actually said? He said in Matthew 10, 34, he said, don't think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, just to make it really clear, but a sword. Okay, Luke 12, 51. Do you suppose I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all. Rather, division. The most effective tool of God's enemies is to convince us that you're not at war at all. There's no evil to fight out there. And remember, these are Christians. They've kind of go th- gone through their newlywed phase. They've seen their first major spiritual victory. And in their case, it was a literal victory. These are people now that are warming up to this idea and singing songs about it. God's preparing his people to be a people that know how to conquer, right? He called his people to do those things. The second most effective thing, after saying there's no real enemy to fight, just be at ease, everybody's good, everybody is welcome, even bring your sin with you, bring your horrible behaviors into our church. And let's make a nice place for everybody to feel comfortable. Well, okay, that's great. Hospitality is what we should be doing. But when we think there isn't stuff coming in the door when we do that, we're, we're fooling ourselves, right? The second most effective thing we have in battle is when the enemy can convince us that it's our job to take out the fight. And we see believers that do hostility and aggression and picket signs and they're shaming people and shunning people, all that nonsense, because we think it's our job somehow to be mean to people. That's not what I'm trying to say with God of War. God does some of this. God fights for us so that we can just be lambs that go to the slaughter, right? And it's a spiritual battle in some ways. Ephesians 6.12 clarifies this idea. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. That is a heavy topic. Really, you get to become the children of Israel. You get to watch God do things. He provides for you. You're eating, you know, lamba bread in the desert. And all of a sudden, you get to notice that there's this battle that's going to be fought. And that can weary people. It can be tiresome. And it can even be scary to talk about. But we shouldn't be scared. We should stand still, pray, and let God fight our battles. And then we get to make up new songs. Like, that's kind of a good deal. And Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. There is a yoke. There is some. There is a wrestling that goes on. But if we learn to trust in the Lord, we find that we have joy and peace in our heart when we do it. So will battles come to believers? Yes, prosperity gospel is a total lie, right? There will be battles that come your way in life. How do you deal with them? Stop, pray, watch God do his thing. And maybe warn people they're going down the ramp path. Like, you know, really, I don't know if you want to do that. I like the line saying to the bottom like a stone because it's so vivid. Sometimes it's okay to celebrate when evil gets what's coming to him. And sometimes we see justice here on earth when God does things. Commentators, it's funny, they skip right over that verse. They don't even talk about it. Like some of these verses are kind of tougher to handle, but yeah, they're celebrating the drowning of Egyptian people, right? It's tougher to celebrate justice when we are taught to be really good sports all the time. Because even from kindergarten in our society, we're taught to be a good sport. And every now and then you find kids that are like, they like to win and they go, yes. And you want to be a good sport when you win, but you also want to, it's okay to celebrate when you win and have victories too. There's something in our hearts that likes to be the victor and we like to win. Um, like when uh, Jackson collected all his chips. <laughs> There's a moment where you're like, he was a good sport, by the way. Nice being a good sport. But it's okay to celebrate and be like, I rock and have that moment. And God gives us those victories so that we can praise him with that. So it would have been even better if after a game of poker you said, praise the Lord. Um, <laughs> but... Hear God's people rejoice. These are not dead people because of God and the enemy are dead. I think in the terms of two major U.S. combat or conflicts, one major conflict in U.S. history was the Vietnam War and a lot of people came back from that war a mess psychologically, right? Because they didn't know why they were fighting it. They didn't know who was doing wrong in Vietnam. But people came back from Germany and beating Hitler. We didn't have those same percentage of psychological issues. People were like, yeah, I kicked some German butt and I'm proud of what I did because they were doing horrible things, right? And that idea of when we fight evil, we're also wired to do that and accept it a little better. When they sing about sinking to the bottom like a stone, they're not regretting the lives of the Egyptians being gone. And that's a, 
it's a difficult concept for us in our society in the way we're doing. Your right hand, the, the term right hand is often a, an image of power um, and authority. When we see right hand in the Bible, that's generally what it means. And it is the deliverer of justice. Justice usually comes from the right hand, metaphorically. Um, justice is part of how God rules, Isaiah 9-7, Psalm 89-14. Justice is one of the goals that God has, Jeremiah 23.5. Just to name a few, um, justice is something that defines a godly ruler. So sometimes godly people have to deal with evil people. And rulers that do that are deemed just, like King David, 2 Samuel 8.15, 1 Chronicles 18.14. God's rule is justice and righteousness. So what's normal or what's right should be a balanced, just society where people don't get hurt because other people are abusing them, right? And sometimes godly people have to fight those battles from positions of authority, the use of the law, and we see that people that do that generally don't regret exhibiting justice. A judge is a good person to have in our society, yet we're in a society where we don't want to cast judgment. But you need justice. It has to be part of what's going on. So they're celebrating that. It's God's hand. It's not our hand. Uh, Jesus made peace between God and man, Colossians 1.20. And Colossians 1.20 says, And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood on the cross. God made peace with us that want to serve him. He did not necessarily make peace with people that are fighting his will on earth. And if you read Revelation, it gets even more graphic. There will be an end to evil people on the earth. And praise the Lord, we don't have to be the ones that make that decision. So our job is to pray, to love each other, and to wait on God to fight for us. So our God is a God of war. I know I spent some time on that, but I don't know. It's one of those things where you're just like, watch out, bro. Our God is a God of war, and he does fight battles. And that's a biblical truth. Um, Isaiah 63, 4, for the day of vengeance is my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. God's justice is perfect, it's coming, and we're just the kids, so we don't make those calls. Romans 12, 19, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will replay, says the Lord. So our job, don't fear, stand still, watch, and then we, we rejoice when the Almighty does his thing. That's kind of a cool job. Um, so he dashed the enemies to pieces, um, another very vivid line in that part. Verse 7. And the greatness of your excellence, you've overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. Wrath is the word charun. It's the first use of this we see in the Bible. Um, it means to send forth heat. So charun is actually a heated burning something. So it's wrath for us is more of a human characteristic of anger. Wrath, in this case, is you sent forth your burning or your, your heat. Okay? It consumed... Burning anger. burning anger is where we get that. It consumed them like stubble, and with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depth congealed in the heart of the sea. And the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desires shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. And you blew your wind, and the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Take heart. When other people attack you, God can handle it. It doesn't matter how threatening they are or how, how much they puff themselves up. God can overthrow anybody that comes against them. The next stanza, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? That rings kind of like what Sarah said when she said, How marvelous is our God, right? It's that same kind of thing. How awesome is God? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you've redeemed, and you've guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Who is like you? From verse 11. The same hand that can spank can also caress. This next stand is more like, what an amazing God we have. It's not about celebrating how he trounced the enemies, like, way to go, God, you totally trounced them. This is more like, God, you're our God. You're amazing. It's almost like they're surprised to find out how wonderful their God is. 
right? They got to meet their God in the first part of Exodus, and now they're celebrating that. So the other piece with habitation, I want you to look for a chiasm. Steph, remind me, not everybody's here when we define a chiasm. A chiasm is an X-shaped literary form where there's lots of stuff up at the top and lots of stuff at the bottom, but there's a main point in the middle and you have a mirrored kind of literary structure that goes in and out. If we're in a song, we should be looking for chiasm. So look at this with me and see if you see the same thing. Habitation is the same neve from verse 2 and verse 13. Uh, we give God a place in our homes. He takes a place in our hearts. So that neve, that habitation idea is in both of those. We have established is in verse 17 rhymes with the word room in verse 2 that we've already taken. We established or God established is in both places. God's going to rock his enemies is in both stanza 2 and stanza 4. I don't know if your Bible has little divisions between the different stanzas. The power of God is celebrated in verse 16 and verse 6. So in the middle of the song is right where we're at now. We're at the X of the song. We're right in the middle. Um, and it zooms in even more if you look at verse 10, the sea covers, and then you look at verse 12 and it says the earth swallowed. So the sea covers, the earth swallows, we got this balance. What sits right in the middle of Moses' song is verse 11. That's the whole point of the song. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? What a beautiful thought. There is none like God. In verse 14, we go on to a prophetic stanza. It starts to look forward into the history. It's not about what God's done. It's about what's about to come. Verse 14, the people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. And the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. And all the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. All those places are nations that are where God says they're going to settle. So they know who lives there. It's like, you know, They know the territory. Fear and dread will fall on them. By greatness of your arm, they will be as still as stone till your people pass over, O Lord. Till the people pass over whom you've purchased, you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling. O sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Canaan will melt away. The people, are, the people of Israel are both realistic about the battles to come. They know there's fights coming and, there's, and a journey that they have to go through. But they're at this point in their history, they're very confident that things are going to go well. They're confident because they just saw God act. We're going to watch that confidence melt away in the coming chapters. And they become very petty little children again. A lot like in our faith, we backslide. We have moments on the mountain where we're like, go God. We have moments where we're like, God, where are you? And they're at a go-God moment right now. You can hear that in their song, right? Um, Canaan, of course, um, will. there are cities that will just melt away before them. And you think of the walls of Jericho that are going to fall, and you think of some of these. So there's some prophetic pieces here. Um, In Exodus 13, 17, um, if we look backwards just a bit, and it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest peradventure the people repent and they see war and they'll return to Egypt. You remember that? They're deciding if they should take the way of the sea up to, Phil- up to the Holy Land or if they took the way of the wilderness. They went the wrong way, right? And at this point, we can see why. Now they're ready to fight battles. But back when they were making that decision, they hadn't seen God fully. They didn't know God. It's why new believers don't necessarily win when they fight those battles early in their faith. You got to learn the word. You got to get to know your God. And then God puts you in the kind of battles you can win, right? Now they can see God. Now they're ready to work. So the song gives them courage because they're just singing it on the road as they go. I think of the little kids that are traveling with them. And those little kids are singing this song in their head as they go. Little Joshua, man, he's just a tyke right now. He's growing up singing this kind of song. And these Jewish people, think of the pattern of thought that puts in their head as they go into their lives. This is taking a new kind of nation. It's not submit and make bricks, kid. That's what we do. We're slaves. It's praise the Lord and celebrate his great and wondrous things. I think David grew up that way too, which is why as a kid, he's like, I'll take the giant on because I don't have to fight the giant. I just got to show up. And put God in front. That's all I got to do. The people will hear and be afraid. 
the word there is, uh, it made me think of Rahab, because it says the people will hear and be afraid. Remember Rahab lived in one of these cities, and she said in Joshua 2.10, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for when you, for you when you came up out of Egypt. So the people of Canaan had heard about what happened. Like that legend had spread quickly, because that's what happens when cool things go on. I will bring them in and plant them so they are hoping for a home, even though right now they don't have one. This isn't just about Egypt in stanza four. They're expanding the God's sovereignty to the entire world, all their enemies, all their problems, all their challenges. God reigns. Verse 18, this is eternal. This is going on forever. Verse 18 is its own stanza. It's a one-line stanza, which means they probably repeated it as many times as a Hillsong concert right? The Lord shall reign forever and ever. And the Lord shall reign forever and ever. That was for you, Nathan. (laughs) Think of this like a refrain. It's what they would have kept singing. So they would have been bouncing this back and forth. um, And it's truth. God reigns forever. Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the children of Israel is what Deuteronomy 31.22 says about this. So Deuteronomy gives Moses credit for this song that he wrote it, which is kind of cool. You're the leader of this new people and you're like, people, hold up, I got to write a song. Before we go anywhere or march anywhere, I'm writing a song right now. And everybody just starts singing along with them and and the children of Whoville are happy once again. (laughs) Revelation 15 mentions this song too. This is a big song in the Bible throughout. If you look at Revelation 15, I'm going to start in verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses the servant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways. You are the King of saints. You shall not fear, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. When we sing, we sing God Almighty, God the just, God the holy, God the judge. That's what we sing about. So if you're not amazed by God, if this doesn't stun you, and if the works of God thus far in the Bible haven't convinced you this is a mighty and powerful God, heaven might not be the place for you. If you're like, eh, God, or whatever, I don't know why you'd want to hang out with God any more than that, right? This is an amazing God. Um, There's an eternal element to this. You trust in God, you see his salvation, you get happy and sing songs, and then you have faith that you can trust in God, see his salvation, take joy and have faith. That cycle is an eternal cycle. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. It's eternal. And if that cycle doesn't totally juice you up, like, yeah, that's what heaven's all about. I have a friend who says this all the time. He's like, man, if you don't like singing songs, if you don't like praising the Lord, if you don't like hearing about what he's doing and watching him work, I don't know if heaven's really for you. Like, why would you want to go? Because that's what we do right? And uh, the closer we can get to that, the better, which is why people fight over worship music in church all the time. If worship music doesn't make me happy, little selfish me, not nice altruistic Sean, but selfish Sean, if worship music doesn't make me happy, I'm going to go complain about it. Because we want our worship to bring us closer to God. That's the point of it. And a lot of times it doesn't. And we're like, eh, you know. But in this case, these Israelites, none of them, they were all thankful for their life. It's a whole group of people totally worshiping the Lord, and I guarantee they're not being picky about who's playing the tambourines, right? (laughs) Verse 19, For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea. Just in case you missed that point, this is why they're singing. And the Lord brought back the waters of the sea on them, but the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Okay, there's no mistaking that the writer of Exodus 15 believes this was a full-on supernatural miracle. No naturalistic explanation talks about waters heaping up, and they wanted to make it really clear. I think verse 19 does that. Now we move to the Song of Miriam. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances, and Miriam answered them. First, let's talk about Miriam. Um, This is the first mention of Miriam in the Bible, uh, by name at least, right? And it's in this song that she wrote. Uh, She's a sister of Aaron, which is an odd phrasing, because that also makes her the sister of Moses, And if Moses is writing this, why didn't he say, she's my sister? (laughs) 
And part of that is we've seen Moses multiple times just say, you know, the baby or the man Moses. He's talking about himself in the third person. It's almost like Moses doesn't like to mention himself. And he's backing himself away because so many people look to him as a leader. He's like, I don't want to be a leader when I'm writing this down. I don't even need to be named. And I think that's super humble. And it shows you a little bit of the character of Moses. And I thought that was cool. Um, It's likely Moses didn't grow up together because remember he was put in a basket. And in Exodus 4.14, it says the sister of Moses was standing by to make sure he didn't die. So Miriam's likely his older sister. Follow me so far? Uh, And it's likely she was with her mom putting that river basket in there. It's also likely Miriam was Moses' only sister because in Numbers 26.59, it says... um, it says so. It says Moses had one sister, right? Prophetess is the word nevia. It means an inspired person, a person of song, of poetry. A lot of times I think we, we think of prophets as like old guys with staffs, largely an image of Moses, right? And they say, they put vibrato in their voice and like, thus saith the Lord. Nothing biblical about that. That's the world's idea of a prophet. It's like putting little white fluffy wings on an angel totally the world's interpretation of those things. A prophetess, is, a prophetess is somebody who writes songs, somebody who writes poetry, somebody who has wisdom and can bring divine knowledge to the table. So that future telling stuff is divine knowledge, but it's only a piece of the biblical concept of prophet. So Miriam had a key leadership role. She was writing songs and leading people. And again, the church gets really weird about males and females in the church. But here we see an example of Miriam being at least third in command of the nation, right? So vice president, and and, because everybody knows that the first lady is actually number two. Anyways, (laughs) or first husband, we'll get a female president. Yeah, but I just think it's interesting because you're like, you know, there's really very few things the Bible doesn't put women in the role of. Um, And one is the role of teaching other men, and, and there's... We'll get to that when we get to the New Testament. Sing to the Lord, because I'm putting my foot in combat and war and all other sorts of things tonight. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. So apparently Miriam just copied Moses' song. That's called, this is our first instance of plagiarism in the Bible. Uh, Doesn't even give him credit. It's likely that the ladies sang an echo to the men as they're hanging around on the road. And that that line would come in after each of those stanzas or something to that effect. And I'm saying that because commenters say that's kind of the Hebrew structure for music. Um, and that she would have had, she would have led a part of the people. So the people are joyful. They're happy. They're walking in faith. This is a good time. We're going to see the rest of this chapter. There's two other seasons that believers seem to go through. We go through seasons where we're on the mountaintop. And we're literally going to go from the mountaintop to bitterness very quickly. And it's almost like this image of a walk in faith is a roller coaster ride. And I and hear this if you've ever been depressed or down, because this is not abnormal for a walk in faith. But Satan loves to use those down times to really tear apart the soul of a believer. But that's not the point of down times. And I think we'll see that in the next few verses. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. Why did I not look up the word sure? What does sure mean, Alyssa? Do you got it ready? Mm-hmm. Usually I look stuff like that up. Sure. It's pretty much the same word as in Hebrew. It's a wall, a place southwest of Palestine on the eastern border within the border of Egypt. Israelites passed through the wilderness of Shur after crossing the Red Sea. So it doesn't have like a meaning. No, it's, it's just a, a town name. It's a wall, but it's a location. Okay. Um... Kind of like Anoka doesn't necessarily mean anything. Yeah. Okay. So the word so at the beginning of verse 22, it implies that the song led to this thing. Do you see that? How that word is thrown in there? So. So they're at this time of joy and the joy naturally leads to this next period because the joy wears off. It's like when you come home from a concert and you're all wound up, but then you wake up in the morning and it's not so exciting anymore. You're back to the grind, right? You had a great night at the park. It was awesome. Then you got to go back to work the next day. So the celebration preps us, strengthens us, encourages us, 
so we can have times of testing. God gets us ramped up so he can challenge us, test us, and see how strong we're, we're getting. Three days is the extent of time that they're out in the wilderness. We know three days is exactly how long your body can live without water. So at this point, some of them are starting to pass out. Some of them are likely thinking they're going to die. They're probably getting wounds and cankers in their mouth, especially if they're singing too much. This is not, this is, they're probably experiencing as much physical pain after three days in the wilderness as anything else. They did not bring large amounts of water. They brought crackers, right? So the body starts to shut down after three days. You're weary, you're sore, and you're suffering. And I think it's, it's hard to go from like singing songs and woo and whatever. And all of a sudden you got this image of like a verse later, they're in pain. And this walk is a journey for them. Verse 23, now when they came to Mara, they could not drink the waters of Mara for they're bitter. Therefore, the name it was called Mara. I like therefore the name it was called Mara because it's like Moses is doing my job. He's like putting the interpretation right there. Mara means bitter. Um, so Moses, thanks for translating. Why do you think it was bitter? Do you think it was salt? Or? Uh, we don't know because we don't know where it was exactly. Yeah. Bitter generally means you can't drink it. There's something wrong with it. It could be hot pools like Yellowstone where there's a high mineral content in it. And if you drink it, you get sick. And I'll tell you why I think that in the next couple verses. Because um, we're going to see what they do. And there's some science behind that, which I try to throw in there when I can. What's going to happen at Mara, this bitter moment, is that they're going to learn how to pray and look to God in tough times. And that God's going to provide for them here as much as he did when there was an army coming after them. God provides for us in our own turmoil as much as when we're being attacked. And this is just beautiful. You really think what this would have been like. It's it's almost a cruel joke to go through the desert for three days and you come up and you see water and you get there and you can't drink it. Isn't that horrible? Think of the heart loss. It's not a mirage. They're actually pools and they kind of run down there with whatever strength they have left and then they get there and it's junk. And that's horrible. Some commentators pointed out that these people were slaves making bricks. They probably could have gone longer than three days because their bodies would have been conditioned for lack of resources. That said, their life is still not in a good place right now. And the people complained against Moses, saying, what are we going to drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. Look, there's a tree, Moses. And And when he cast it into the waters, the trees were made sweet. Well, that's interesting. The word complaining is loom. It means to murmur, to to tarry or to slow down, to endure something or to grudge something. It's a huge big word for negatively existing, right? So it's not to make a complaint, it's to be a complainer, right? They pass the night then and there's this general murmuring going on in the camp of Moses has led us out here to die. And they did that right before the Pharaoh attack too. So they're still growing in their faith as we can see and they have to be shown. So showed them a tree. So far, all the miracles have been done with Moses' rod. Why couldn't Moses just use his rod and touch the water? Because it's nowhere near as nice of an image as a tree. If we think about this as Christians, what makes the bitter sweet? What's the thing that makes the vinegar turn into our redemption? And it's the tree. It's that Christ hung on a tree for our sins and our salvation. So here they are lost, about to die of starvation. They are thirsting for water. You see the imagery here? Mm -hmm. And what does God give them? He gives them a tree. Moses throws it in the water. It doesn't say that God said to throw it in the water. So somehow or another, Moses is inspired to take the tree, cut it down, and throw it in the water. That's a really odd thing to do, but he does it, and it doesn't tell us why, so I'm not going to get into why. This would take, I thought it was cool because to take that tree down and throw it in the water, Moses didn't do that by himself. It takes multiple people to take a tree and throw it in the water. The congregation then in tough times has to work together. When things get tough, help people, serve and chip in. This is a new method. God's doing things differently. I think that's a cool idea too. There's something new with God. Moses listens, so he follows. When the rulership, the rod that Moses used could be interpreted as sovereignty or shepherding, but that tree comes to represent God's grace in times of bitterness. There's a cleansing in the water. The waters were made sweet. 
Uh, Buckingham's commentaries does a really nice job with this. He goes on, he writes this whole book about science in the Bible, and he talks about local trees in this part of the world could have drawn minerals out from the bottoms of the pool, make, and as the tree sank, it would have sucked minerals to it. I don't understand any of this science, and I tried to read it, and it was chemistry stuff. Um, but it could be that the minerals in the water hung to this or cling to the sap of the tree and made it so that the magnesium and calcium combined to create dolomite. I have no idea what these words mean, but I'm thinking my science people might. And it's in a recording, so I can go back and try to figure it out later. Um, dolomite's used by athletes when they have to do hot weather, hot, hot weather performance things. So if you're out running in a desert, one of the things you supplement yourself with is dolomite. So the waters would still taste horrible, but they'd now have a product in them that was even better than just drinking water. That was cool. And I'm like, thank you, Buckingham. That's interesting stuff. Here's the other piece of it. And this is, is my geek fun with it. When you drink water with too many minerals in it, you will diarrhea. You will run like a racehorse. <laughs> so I thought this was interesting because part of this process is a cleansing process for them. When they drink this water, it cleans out everything they would have ate back in Egypt. So not only has he gotten his people out of Egypt, he's getting Egypt out of the people. <laughs> and I thought that was a really cool idea. <laughs> Alyssa's looking at me like, what did I just... <laughs> so here's the other piece. Part of our understanding of archaeology, when you look at these mummies and look at them, a lot of those Egyptian bodies that we found had tons of amoebic, um, amoebic issues and internal parasites. The Egyptians were plagued with crap in their stomachs. A magnesium, uh, calcium, dolomite combination would cleanse all parasites from the system. So the diseases that God promised in the last chapter that they wouldn't suffer from, this bitter water would have cleansed their systems out of all of that stuff. It wouldn't have been fun. And neither is it fun to clean our lives out of the stuff that we once held dear, that now we look at it and say, that's idle time. That's a waste of my life. That's sin. I want that out of my life. That's something where I'm worshiping idols that I don't want to worship. I want that out of my life. Cleansing your life, not fun, right? But we do it because we're like, I want God more than I want this garbage. And that's what they do. They're thirsty. They drink of the living water and it flushes them out and it cleans them out. And that can be a process. Um, so... The cleansing also makes verse 26 make a lot more sense. So if there is mass diarrhea going on and we read verse 26, it makes a little more sense why God's assuring them of what he's doing with them right now. So there he made a statute and an ordinance for them. So we're going to get the law. And there he tested them. What a beautiful thing. When we're in these times of bitterness, that's when we get tested. We get to see what our metal's like, right? And he said, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what's right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. By the way, his commandments and statutes haven't been written yet. So this is like predicting in the future there's going to be a law for you as a people. I will put, a, I, or, uh, let me read that again. If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord, they've done that, and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you, which I've brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. And that's a new name for God. He tested them as the word Nasa. It means to try or to prove or to assess something. It's to put something through the ringer. It's what Zach does for a living, right? You see what you can do to that thing before it breaks. That's what the word means. It's a scientific almost inquiry that God is conducting on his people. How far can I push my people to get the best performance of righteousness out of them I can get? I want them to be a light for the world. The light better work, right? So he's testing them. The diseases are not a fun thing. And there's other places in the Bible. Uh, and that there are times diseases are natural. At times in the Bible, we sometimes see diseases coming from the enemy. But in this case, we see a third option. There are also times that God gives diseases to test and train people. I told you this was a tough night. That's a tough theological concept. Why would God give a disease? 
And sometimes it's to test people. And this is super tough because I think there's been a lot of believers that abuse this idea and somebody gets sick and they're like, you just need to pray about it and get enough faith to be gone. The answer to that is, what if my disease is here to teach me something? God can heal me. He can heal me in a second. But what if my job is to be sick and die and to show grace in God through that process so that everyone around me can see what a believer looks like when they're in a bitter time? How many people will come to God because they see me gracefully handle pain, agony, and death? That is not the message of a happy church, right? But it's biblical. Sometimes God puts us through bitter times to test us. I struggle with that idea, and I'm telling you right now, that's a tough idea for me to get my head around. My mom died of cancer when I was in first grade. That is a super tough, it's like personal, right? How does that happen? How do we have a world where something like that can happen? But here it is. You got a nation of people with diarrhea and God is testing them, right? Sometimes that happens. Again, sometimes it's from the enemy. We saw Jesus pray against disease and bam, the disease was gone because he kicked the enemy out of the body and it's taken care of like that. But that is not always the case. You got to watch out for people that come with a false gospel that all sickness and death is bad. That's impossible because we all die right? Death is not in God's eyes that horrible of a thing, especially if it gets to take us home and hang out with us. It's actually an awesome thing. The commandments and the diseases go together. If you follow God's commandments, I won't put these diseases on you. Um, Macmillan writes a book called None of These Diseases. If you've never seen this book or given it a read, awesome book, okay? It's about how God's laws are actually super scientifically hygienic. They're really good laws, And people say, well, Leviticus, it's just this crazy book of weird laws. Wait till we get to Leviticus. We'll be like, wow, that's like how you run a hospital. This is like how you do it. Um, And those things are really amazing. So what might seem to be silly is actually super healthy, right? Um, The Egyptians, there's a small hint here and one additional purpose in the process of the plagues. We looked at the plagues like there's a process going on. It wasn't only to show Egypt, but it puts a vivid picture in the heads of the Hebrews of what God can do to people when he's not happy with them. That helps, that fear of God helps them obey God. I am the Lord who heals you. This is the cool part. This is the part I want to focus on these verses. When we get to the bitter pools, we get to learn a new name for God. When you have tough times in your life, you get to learn that God is bigger than those times really amazing moment. You don't see that side of God unless you really go through those things. The word there, I'm the Lord who heals you, is Jehovah Rapha, um, the Lord that heals. In our tough t- and we don't hear Jehovah Rapha on posters. You ever notice, you see the names of God posters, and they have Jehovah and Elohim and all these great names, um, but you don't see Je- Jehovah Rapha anywhere on those posters. We don't like that side of God, that side of God that tests us and that heals us when we're sick. But it's a glorious side to God. It's a beautiful side to God. Not only does he fight our battles, he takes care of us when we're sick. In our toughest times, we get to see a new new face for God. He can only be our healer when we're sick. You want to meet the healer God? You have to go through tough times, right? Matthew 9, 12 says, When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those that are well don't have any need for a physician but those who are sick. I'm going to go to the sick, not the people that don't need me, right? And so that's, it's an odd thing, because like, do we want to pray to meet Jehovah Rapha? Like, do we really want to, Lord, I want to meet that side of you. Like, I'm not praying that prayer. (laughs) No, thank you. I only pray that prayer if God blesses you with a test, because we don't ask for that ever. So we've seen two faces to God so far in this chapter. (laughs) We're going to like the third face, but the first two, Jehovah Rapha and Jehovah Milkamah, God of war and God of healing are sides to God that aren't always so sexy for Sunday morning sermons. (laughs) We love the winning God, but we hesitate to learn this healer God. We're proud of the God of war, but would you really want to meet that God? Would you really want to see that side for yourself? Or would you want to watch it from a distance as the Egyptians experienced that God, right? Matthew 4.24 says, Then his fame, Jesus' fame, went throughout all Syria, They brought to him all the sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. God heals. Jesus was a healing God too. Jehovah Rapha, right? And part of the healing spreads the word of God. 
When healings happen, people listen, even non-believing people, right? And when you go into like missionary parts of the world, healing is one of the prominent miracles that they claim they see all the time. Because you're with a group of people where God wants to spread his word amongst this group of people. And healing tends to be how Jesus introduced himself and how missionaries even today still do it. Which is why you must read missionary books on a regular basis. God does this stuff even today or thousands of missionaries are just lying to us. Which is what my secular friends say is happening and I just think that's foolish. Right? Are we really going to disregard rational people? Um, But anyways... That's apologetics. We'll stick to Matthew 10:8, where it says, Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Not only is Jehovah Rapha our God, but it's part of the command Jesus gives to his disciples. I'm terrified of this. Do I have the faith to walk around and heal people? So I was watching healer videos on YouTube, right? There's lots of people out there that are like, woo, I'm a healer man. And they do healing things. And they'll do these, it's lame. They'll do this thing where they'll like sit you down and say, does anybody in the room have knee pain? Well, yeah, like everybody. (laughs) You're not prophetic, dude. And then they'll say, sit me down. Now move your hips back, sit up straight. And they'll like pull their legs out. And clearly they're like moving them to the side a little bit. See how one leg is longer than the other? Yeah. And then they'll go, okay. And then they'll just go, oh. And then they'll move. Look, now they're the same size. Does your knee feel better? person's like, yeah, my knee feels better. Okay, put that one on YouTube. We got somebody to say it. (laughs) And you're like, whoa. And then you get to be really skeptic because there's all these shysters out there. And you're like, man, I don't want to be skeptical because when I read the Bible, this stuff happens too. But I've seen in 40 some years of life, I don't know how old I am anymore. When healing happens, it's generally not like on YouTube and in a miracle clip or at a ceremony where they've said, we're going to have a healing session tonight. It generally happens a lot. God moves like a breeze and all of a sudden it happens and people are like, it just, we went into the doctor and the doctor said it was gone. What do you mean baseball sized cancer stuff just disappeared? Yeah. And the doctor couldn't believe what he saw. Mm. Happens all the time. It happens way more than we'd like to notice because the media, they never report that news. But you would think they would put that right on the news, but they don't. We just hear about it in our churches and stuff, right? we got miracles where we've seen that sort of thing in our own family. We've said, Lord, move these bones, and we go back in and the bones have been moved. It's not lightning bolt miracles. It's that quiet breeze that moves throughout the night, and when you wake up, the Red Sea is moved. It happens slowly, but when you look at it, it's huge. And you're like, that was amazing. God doesn't intervene to the point where it's freaky or weird. He intervenes to the point where, where you reverence him when it happens. When real healing happens, it's not something where you're like skeptical of it because it's there and it happened and you're like, I have to just believe that happened, right? And people tend to praise the Lord. They don't praise themselves and they don't ask for a donation afterwards just so you can discern those things, right? (laughs) Verse 27, and then they came to Elam where the 12 wells of water and the 70 palm trees, so they camped there by the river. So they went to Cabo, right? After this time of bitterness, what does God do with his people? You get to go to resort land. Three seasons in the Christian life. Joy and celebration, bitterness and testing, vacation time. Very little is said of Elam, but they spend the longest amount of time on vacation. Thank you, God. The test was short-lived. But Elam's going to be a long season for them. It's a season of blessing. It's where they come to rest. The numbers of 12 and 70 are an argument that the tribes or the armies of Israel were in hundreds, not thousands. Remember we talked about how many people left Egypt? So that you're saying, well, that number of things doesn't really amount to 2 million people. Most people still think it means 2 million people. They just took turns under the palm trees. Right? It's my turn. Move. Um, it's the end of the segment or journey. There's a song here. It goes from bitter to healing to cleansing and now rest. It's a major stopping point in the book of Exodus. So it's a huge end point, end of scroll kind of thing. There's this season of inactivity. I think of this a lot of times because you run into people in church and they're like, I want God to do something in my life. And they just have all this like, I'm just waiting. God must do something. And it's like, or God wants you to be in that job for 10 years, building a level of trust with one person so they might come to the Lord later on. Seasons of rest where you've been put there and you know you were put there and then you don't hear from God for 10 years, grind it out, man. Enjoy the palm trees. 
You're not being tested and you're not seeing miracles. And that's kind of the thing is in Elam, they don't see any miracles. There's nothing, right? One sentence. If you want to see miracles, get ready for the, the bitterness of Mara or the combat of the Red Sea. Do you really want your miracles or do you like that you're in rest? I think that's what's going on in America with believers. And it's making us dull. We are not sharp warriors because we're in a, we just got rest. Like Lord just blessed our nation with peace, prosperity. We got food on the table. We got dogs on the carpet. Life is good in America, season of rest. But God doesn't tell us to stop worshiping him during that season. So the faithful, we're still Whoville kids. We're still shouting out the praise of the Lord, even though things are good. There are other parts of the world that are in seasons of war and Christians are dying. And if you don't look at like CBN, Christian Broadcasting News, watch what's going on in the world. There are thousands of Christians getting slaughtered right now. We're in Elam and they're at the Red Sea. There are people that are bitter where Christians are being persecuted. They're being told they can't run their businesses. They're being ostracized from their workplaces. Look anywhere in Europe and you can see Christians are completely ignored and set aside. I think we're heading that direction in this country, but I'm going to stay under my palm tree until it's not my turn, right? But when it's my turn, am I ready to fight? Am I ready for the test? I hope so. I hope God puts me in that place. Let's do that. It's a major stopping point for these people. I love how Charles Spurgeon, anybody here read Spurgeon? I love Spurgeon's take on this, so I put the quote right here. Israel had no miracles in Elam. Wells and palm trees they had, but they had no miracle there, no miraculous change of the bitter into the sweet. They had no statute, they had no ordinance, and no promise, and no new revelations of God, and no new name came for Jehovah there. Jehovah Milkmah, or however you say that, God of war. Jehovah Rapha, was that it? God of healing. No new names in Elam. You don't get to know God any better when you're at rest, right? And it's an interesting thought. Rest is nice and it's necessary in our journeys, but it's the opposite of learning more about your faith and growing in your faith. If you want to grow in your faith, take on new challenges, take on a new ministry, take on a new service to your church, try something new, do something new, and get yourself back into those challenges. This is the believer's walk, and I'll kind of wrap up with that thought. Here's what we do as believers. We have seasons of abundance, seasons of cleansing, and seasons of resting. That's what we have in our walk with Christ. And those recognize what season you're in. Bless the people that are in seasons of cleansing. When you go to church and you're feeling good, it's not about what church does for you. If you're a mature believer, look around your church and go, who can I help that's in a season of cleansing right now? Who needs me because their life is bitter? And how can I bring joy into that life? The people that sing songs minister to the people drinking the bitter water and the people that are getting cleansed minister to the people that are at rest. And the people that are at rest are ready to write new songs to be in celebration. It's a cool cycle. It's beautiful. A congregation has some duties in all three seasons. All three seasons, we're supposed to pray. We're supposed to keep talking to our God in all three seasons. The congregation encourages and helps each other and we're supposed to remember that tree that when we have bitter stuff, we turn to the tree. That's so hard to do. And then I like this one. The congregation sang together. So the congregation cut down the tree together, the congregation hung out at Elam together, and the congregation sang songs together. So that's kind of a cool thing. And I know we got worship people in this group, so I thought it was just a wonderful thing. Why do we worship? Because it's what we do together. It's weird. It's an odd spiritual thing. It's unique to human beings over all of the natural world. And it's the way God has his people connect to him. And it's really cool. Pray, encourage each other, turn to the cross, sing together, remember what he's done by studying the word. Know who God is. God has a plan for every human. I don't know what your plan is, but some of those plans are abundant life. Some of those are faith and blessing. And we don't do it alone. And every piece, remember I said at the beginning, we're now talking congregation. We're not talking the patriarchs of Genesis. We're talking the congregation of Exodus. We as a people do this stuff alone. Praise the Lord. Because I'm way too weak to do this on my own. I have no idea. That's why I married her. Right? (laughs) Who are they 
in in 16.1, we got to go back. And they took their journey from Elam and all the congregation of the children of Israel. They, in that last verse, that's the congregation. That's who does these things. God is now dealing with the people. But in the next chapter, chapter 16, look at that next verse. We're literally going to a place called sin next week. So didn't make that one hard to interpret at all. But we're going to go to a place called sin. And that is also part of our walk in Christ and walk in the faith as we have to deal with sin. So if you want to come back for next week, we're going to deal with how Christians should deal with sin. And I think that is kind of a bummer of a topic, but it might be helpful if you're struggling with sin in your life. Let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, Lord, praise you that no matter what we have to deal with in life, we don't do it alone. Thank you for the congregation. Lord, praise you and may your name be lifted high in that we can study your word, hear your stories and get the same courage that David had to face a Goliath. And Lord, we know that courage was rooted in the fact that you fight our battles. All we got to do is show up. Lord, help us to show up, to do it with boldness. Help us to proclaim your name before we see what you do. So that, Lord, when you do things, we can celebrate your name and praise you. And other people can just shake their heads and go, wow, that was real. And, Lord, we just want to see that happen. We just love that. Lord, I don't want to pray for miracles in my life because I don't want those seasons. Uh, but, Lord, if it's if you want me to be tested, I'm going to put my life there. Test me. Show me a new path. Have Give me the bitter waters, Lord, so I can be cleansed. Because I don't want a life that's apart from you. And there's nothing on this earth that the world has to offer that has any value. So give me you, Lord, the God of war that fights my battles, the God of healing that heals my soul and my heart. Lord, I want to rest in you and I want that season. And, and I'll rest in you as long as I can and just sing the songs to our children, teach the word to our family and friends, and Lord, celebrate those seasons of rest that we get in our life. Thank you that in this country we have that still. And there might be people that don't love you here, Lord, but in overall, we as believers, we can meet, we can talk, we can celebrate, we can sing your praises in the middle of the street. And Lord, we just live in a place where we can do that. And thank you for that. Thank you for that gift and those palm trees and those pools. Thank you that we... Um, have each day that we can turn to one another and love one another as you've commanded us to do, Lord. Help us to forgive one another for our imperfections, for our quirks and foibles. Lord, thank you for the forgiveness for uh, being a Bible geek that we have for each other, Lord. We are geeks together and we lift you up. Lord, I pray for the new people that are here tonight that don't know what they just got into. Um, Lord, I just pray that you bless their hearts and may they be um, blessed this week. May this the message of your word stick with them all week and help them in whatever situations are coming their way this week, Lord. I pray for the new teachers in the room that get to start their school year in a few weeks, Lord. May you bless that classroom. I pray for those students ahead of time. I don't know them by name, Lord, um, but I just pray that each kid, each individual young boy and girl, they learn uh, the love that you have for them through the teachers in this room as they get started with their school year. Lord, I just pray for those classrooms that the enemy will not be allowed entrance, that you will keep peace in those rooms, that you will keep order in those rooms, and that you'll use the teachers to help carry out your law and your justice in that classroom. And may it be fair and may it be just. Um, may they turn to you instead of trying to fight their own battles with, in the battles with those little kids. May they just learn to pray to you and turn to you and love you. In Jesus' holy name, we thank you for this day. Amen.